Hello and welcome to Biosounds, where PhD students give you a taste of science happening at the University of Geneva. I'm Olympia and I will be presenting episode 6 of season 3. Today we'll be hearing from our correspondent Zoe Valbray, who will be interviewing Professor Michel Milinkovic about the beautiful diversity in nature, exotic animals and their development, and another way to study biology with the help of physics. Zoe, the floor is yours. Hello, I'm Zoe, and today on the podcast our guest is Professor Michel Milinkovic. He is a full professor in the Department of Genetics and Evolution at the University of Geneva. So welcome and hello. Thank you very much. So as you know, our podcast aims to communicate current research, current science happening at the University of Geneva to everyone, whether they're a scientist, whether they have a scientific background or not. So I want to start the interview with a scenario. So imagine you're at a dinner party, you've been invited by a friend. It's a beautiful apartment with a lovely view of Lake Geneva. Mm -hmm. And after you arrive, you sit at the table and the host asks you to explain your research so that the whole table can understand what your science is about. What would you tell them? Funny question. I I think I would say that I am investigating the... um, physical and biological mechanisms that are at the origin of beauty in nature. That's what I would say. And also the the mathematical concepts that uh, allow us to describe these mechanisms in a very um, efficient way. So what do you mean by the beauty of nature? So I think we all agree that that nature is beautiful, right? Mm, Yeah. Uh, At least, hopefully, if you are sane in your mind when you go outside in the wild, and if you are safe, obviously, uh, doing so, uh, you will find all around you beautiful objects that are living organisms. Not only living uh, organisms, by the way, because you can find patterns everywhere. Mm-hmm. If you would see mud cracking, or if you would see um, some patterns in rocks or, or in lava and things like that, you, you would find that already beautiful, but obviously... As you are looking at organisms, uh, if you look at leaves of trees, how branches are, are organized on the tree, if you are looking at how the petals are organized on a flower, um, of course, if you are looking at the color patterns of animals, mm-hmm. you know, whether a zebra or a cheetah or uh, invertebrates, the way they are organized, especially yeah. their morphology, we find that in most cases beautiful or at least at least we, we are sometimes surprised, sometimes afraid, but we are not uh, considering this lame or not interesting. I think everybody agrees that uh, the diversity of life is amazing. And when you look at the patterns of living organisms, it is beautiful. Okay, so the beauty in not just animals, but nature in general and the patterns that we can find there. I think, yeah, we can all appreciate that, whether we're scientists or not, just yes. we're naturally curious about nature. Yes, and I think that, by the way, artists, most artists are actually, you know, trying to to display patterns uh, that are very, very often inspired from nature, obviously. Mm, okay. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit about your background and how you became inspired by these patterns in nature? And I guess a lot of your work is also about patterns on the skin of animals. What's your background and how did it lead you to have a lab focused on this subject? Okay, Um, so I studied 
um, at the university I studied biology, although I was extremely frustrated because I wanted to do also physics. Mm. So, but I had to choose, which I think it's a horrible constraint that still today students have to make. So this is something I'm trying to fight against. The idea that science has to be organized into compartments. Yeah. When you enter the university, you already have to decide if you want to do biology or physics or mathematics or chemistry. Um, I think this is, this is completely artificial. So you think these subjects are so intertwined that Absolutely. they shouldn't be separated into... Absolutely. Subjects. I think it should be much easier for students to have a multidisciplinary curriculum. Fortunately, at the University of Geneva, we have a few possibilities to favor uh, multidisciplinary uh, uh, curricula, but in general, it's difficult. So anyway, I had to choose. And when I, I was doing my first year uh, at the University of Brussels, actually, uh, fortunately enough, it's not the case anymore in most universities, but I, I think it was a blessing. Mm -hmm. We had only four courses, chemistry, math, physics, and biology. Okay? Yeah. So in a way, it was totally multidisciplinary. Uh, and we were sharing auditoria with physicists and with chemists and so uh, I don't know if it was because it's easier for the organization that they did it that way, but it was wonderful because we didn't feel that we were biology students. We were science students. Yeah. Okay? And then at the end of the first year, I was, I was really tore apart between physics and biology. Some physics, uh, physics uh, professors pushing me to do physics and, and others pushing me to do biology. And, um, and I had to choose and it was quite painful. And uh, I chose biology because I had to make a choice, but that was almost a random choice. Okay. okay? What pushed me possibly um, in, in retrospect to do biology instead of physics is because indeed I was already extremely um, impressed by the beauty of living organisms. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, maybe this is what I should do. Okay. And, um, and then, and then I, I did a PhD in evolutionary biology, uh, doing a lot of computer science uh, in the same time because it okay. was phylogeny inference, conservation biology. So it was already, well, I was always looking for interdisciplinarity, basically. Okay. So I, I started to do computer science as well. And then um, I became, well, I did my PhD at Yale University in the US. And then I um, had a professorship in Belgium Mm -hmm. where I developed a group working on uh, evolutionary biology. But I was still frustrated <laughs> by the fact that we were not looking enough at the mechanisms mm -hmm. uh, that are generating this diversity. So even if you understand everything about DNA, um, you know nothing about how this is translated into a process that we call morphogenesis, how... how um, the patterns are coming about. Um, you know, this is this is really sort of a black box. So development biology is a very important aspect of this, of course. So I started to get interested into this, and I decided to jump into what is still called today um, EvoDevo, so evolutionary developmental biology, which is combining um, development biology and evolutionary biology, which which is a nice, very nice topic. But very quickly, I realized that this is still incomplete if you don't bring in the physics 
of development. So basically mechanics to be, uh, to be uh, general. And, um, and that's what I've been doing here at the University of Geneva for the last uh, uh, 14 years almost, is to combine development, evolution and physics. So you kind of had this journey of almost battling against this idea of sciences divided into separate subjects and you've slowly managed to bring it all together yes. in your lab and have yes. this interdisciplinary team of yes. physicists, biologists, all working together to understand, well, observe, I guess, the biology side is the direct observations of the life and the beauty and patterns of life, but then also the physics, the underlying mechanisms that can explain this. Um, so moving more towards the specific work of your lab, yes. so you study evolution and development of, of animals and organisms, and many researchers also study the subject but use more classical uh, models like mice and frogs and yes. something quite striking about your work is you study very different organisms so quite exotic if I can say and more like reptiles so which animals do you study and why why yes. do you study okay so uh, indeed this is this is something that you know people often think I'm crazy uh, <laughs> doing which is to use non-modern organisms so Obviously, modern organisms have been and continue to be extremely important. So, so modern organisms, you just mean the... Drosophila, the mouse, C. elegans. Yeah. Uh, these, these kind of models are fantastic for, for multiple reasons. They've not been chosen randomly, right? They've been chosen because they have some very, very specific uh, practical advantages. For example, short generation time, right? Uh, the fact that, for example, uh, the zebrafish embryo is, is transparent that might seem silly as an argument, but it's a very important argument because you can do imaging so efficiently. Yeah. Okay? Um, so these organisms are very important also because given that they've been selected a while ago, people have developed technologies specific yeah. to these organisms, and these technologies are just amazing. When I see what my friends and colleagues do with Drosophila or zebrafish, I'm of course very jealous not to be able to do all of this in a snake or a hedgehog, okay? But there is another side of the coin. So I'm always saying that, yes, it seems totally crazy to work with non-model organisms, uh, and indeed it is much more difficult to work with snakes than with, uh, let's say, zebrafish, because the generation time is so long, because most of the technologies well, many, not most, but many technologies cannot be easily transferred to a snake, okay? Yeah. But on the other hand, you don't have any other choice. If you want to understand the diversity, complexity of the living world, you cannot pretend that you will understand this diversity and complexity by studying a handful of species. So rather than applying, yeah, just a few, like a mouse and a frog and a worm, we can't extract everything we learn from just a few organisms to the whole diversity that Absolutely. we have on Absolutely. Absolutely. There are, there are many aspects of, of biological processes, for example, that we think are completely universal, but they are not. Mm -hmm. Take mitosis, which is a subject I know very little, but I, 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 I give you this example anyway because um, obviously molecular biologists know with exquisite details how mitosis is working 
in the model eukaryote. So this is a cell, cell dividing cell, cell division, right? Yeah. But actually, when you look at the diversity of organisms, you see that there are tons of organisms doing mitosis in a completely different way. There are even, there are even organisms that are doing mitosis without, without uh, microtubules. This is insane, okay? So extrapolating what we know about uh, a few model species to the whole living world is, is, is a very dangerous thing to do, okay? There is one example in my field, which is, which is interesting, is the fact that one of my heroes is, is Alan Turing. Yeah. So Alan Turing was an um, absolute genius. Um, he was a mathematician, but at the end of his life, he died very young, unfortunately, in horrible circumstances, by the way. He got interested into biology. He was like, oh, okay, for reasons, again, that are very long to explain, he was stuck at home, not finding a job anywhere. I mean, this is a crazy story. And because he was bored and he was like, okay, what, is it, what could I do now? And uh, after cracking the German code, Nazi code, by the way, and, uh, and inventing basically all the major concepts of computers, modern computers together with John von Neumann and many other things. He did tons of unbelievable research. He, he thought, well, oh, biology is interesting. How, how do you pattern an organism? You know, how do you go from a single fertilized egg to uh, an organism like a human where you have structures, you know, you're left and right and, and a head and a tail and all these things, right? It, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is one major question in biology. And he, he built a mathematical model, which is called reaction diffusion, called today as you know, the Turing model, yeah. um, which allows to explain how uh, using just two chemicals, one activator and one inhibitor, you can generate spatial patterns. It's a very abstract um, model, but that could explain beautifully and in a very simple way how organisms are patterned. Okay? So he made this in a purely, well, in a theoretical mathematical yes. way, talking about how patterns can form, but it's something that in biology or in interdisciplinary science, we can explain how patterns can form on animals like zebra stripes or yes. jaguar spots. Exactly. So um, biology has very little to, you know, to explain at that time about how this is happening, right? And he's, he's coming with a very simple, very elegant mathematical model that could explain this if you are saying you have two chemicals, for example, and obviously, you know, chemicals can be proteins, so it can be gene products and things yeah. like that. This is all, all that is coherent with biology. There is no problem. And, and this paper, which is a masterpiece that he published in, in 1952, what I want, the story I want to tell is the fact that indeed this model is very simple and very beautiful, uh, completely counterintuitive, right? So how how can these two chemicals generate a pattern of stripes or spots or yeah. labyrinths and things like that? But it's working very well. Um, and then people have been, of course, investigating the development of organisms. And one major model has been Drosophila, has been the, the fruit fly, and um, the early development of Prosophila embryo ends up with a banded um, morphology, right? When you have uh, segmentation. And this has been investigated in exquisite details by 
molecular developmental biologists. Mm -hmm. And it does not involve a Turing mechanism at all. Okay. Okay. It, it involves a, a different concept, which is positional information, and it's a succession of gradients of morphogens that are establishing these things in a very complicated way, in a very complicated, unelegant way. Okay? <laughs> and there is a paper by uh, uh, Mike Ackham in, uh, in Nature or Science, I think it was Nature, you know, saying, I, I paraphrase, I don't remember the exact title, but it was something like making... Uh, the Drosophila embryo in an inelegant way, and basically saying, well, Turing was proposing something amazing, but it's not happening. It's, that's not how organisms are built, except that much later people realized that uh, Drosophila is very derived in its way to uh, develop this early segmentation uh, program, and that actually uh, patterning is indeed in many, many, many cases, including in tons of insects, is generated through a Turing mechanism. Okay. So this is a, a, a nice example of finding something which is, you know, true. I mean, the development of Drosophila, this is a very important piece of information. I'm not mm -hmm. saying this should be trash. This is a marvelous piece of work. And it's very, very interesting and important in the history of uh, developmental biology. But extrapolating this, these results to how organisms in general are patterning was wrong. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It doesn't make this piece of information less important. It just meaning that you cannot extrapolate mm -hmm. this result to everything else. That's yeah. all. So that, that's one reason why, why you have to be careful and maybe snakes do things a bit differently than, I don't know, uh, a mouse and etc., uh, etc. Et and don't forget, there are millions and millions of species, so it is indeed very likely that you cannot understand this diversity and this yeah. complexity by just looking at five species. It's also interesting, the thought that, I mean, for obvious reasons, we don't do a lot of testing on humans, but we extrapolate a lot of what we learn from yeah. specific organisms to humans. Yeah. I mean, usually you're choosing very closely related mammals. Yeah, it's interesting, this idea of yeah. the, the variety that we obviously see in, in the diversity we have in nature. Yeah, and, and, and therefore, it is very difficult to work with non-model organisms, of course, technically speaking. But I always add that it's very easy in the sense that you are for sure going to stumble across very interesting stuff <laughs> because people have not looked at these beasts enough. So when you look close enough, you find treasures everywhere. You're like, what? What's this now? This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't look, this, this doesn't look like what we know yeah. about patterning, for example. Talking about these interesting and diverse animals, so you've done a lot of work on, as we said, animal skin, so the appendages like scales and hairs and colors and patterns. Yeah. And one thing that caught my eye in a couple of studies I saw that you've done is the cracking of skin. So, for instance, yes. I saw this this study, so it's from 2018, led by Antonio Martins, this uh, studying of African elephants. So I think you used skin samples to study the cracking of elephant skin. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, given that, that in my lab we work on non-model species, you should not make your life even more difficult than necessary, right? So 
I decided that we would focus on the skin for multiple reasons. One of them is that many of the phenotypes we are interested in too are readily observable, mm. right? You just look at the animal. So that's why we study uh, colors and color patterns. And we also look at skin appendages, so hair, feathers, spines, uh, scales, etc. Again, because you can analyze their geometries, their colors, their shapes, etc., quite easily in principle. Uh, now, that's exactly what we do. We go around and we're like, okay, uh, what, what are the beasts around, you know? And therefore, you're tempted to sometimes jump to very different organisms, but that's okay. So we are working with about 35 species. Wow. Some snakes, some lizards, some mammals, spiny mammals, for example. What's and a spiny mammal? A spiny mammal is, for example, a hedgehog. Uh, but a tenrec also is a, is a spiny mammal. A tenrec looks very, very much like a hedgehog. Actually, if I would show you a tenrec, it's very likely you would believe it's a hedgehog. Okay. But it's not at all. It's an afrotheria. It's a group of mammals, which is one of the first lineage of mammals that separated from the others. Okay. And this includes tenrecs, looks like hedgehogs, but also elephants ah. and manatees. So uh, this tenrec would be more closely related to an elephant than to a hedgehog. Wow. Okay? So they develop their spines independently. So this is the kind of things we are interested into. How can you evolve a structure twice independently or something that looks like it's the same, it's a spine? What is the developmental process? Okay? So that's the kind of thing we're interested into. And then to speak about the elephants, I, I was really amazed when... Um, I saw uh, pictures of elephants uh, close enough that there was something besides their big wrinkles that everybody knows about, you know, the African elephants. There was like a pattern of something much more intricate. And then I, I looked into the literature and indeed people have described the existence of tiny channels that are adorning the, uh, the, the skin of the elephants everywhere. And they form a network of channels. And these channels have been demonstrated to be important for wetting the skin. So if you put some water on the skin, the water is going to spread over the skin through these channels very, very efficiently by capillary forces. These elephants quite famously play around in the water and exactly. spray water on themselves. Exactly. And this also allows mud to stick much longer and much more efficiently on their skin. So this is an adaptive character that allows them to store a lot of water and, and to have the mud sticking much better. The mud is useful because it protects them from the sun and from, from uh, insect bites and things like that. And the water is super important because these animals don't have sweat glands, so the only way for them to evacuate calories is through evaporative cooling. So they need to have some water on them to perform this thermoregulation. Okay, so that was known. But how, what, what are these channels? What is yeah. this? Okay. I, I collaborated with a, a great guy in South Africa, Sean Hensman, who for years now has been uh, recovering elephants that were uh, mistreated or orphans or things like that. And uh, he has a huge property where these animals are, are roaming free, mm -hmm. but they are semi-tamed, right? Okay. Because they also feed them... Animals. They are not completely wild. I, I got interested into investigating, you know, the, the process of forming these channels. 
So, okay, elephants. Now, what are you talking about? That's going to be hard, right? <laughs> but with this guy, we could do some experiments on these animals, you know, throwing water, checking how it's spreading. We could, you know, scrape a little bit of the... of the Because this is keratin, it's, it's, it's really not hurting or whatever. Like kind of nails. Yes. yes, and to see how it's growing back. Uh, all this was very useful. But then we, we started searching, you know, I have, of course, tons of contacts in zoos and all over the world. And I spread the news that we were looking for skin samples. If by bad luck there is an animal who is dying, uh, uh, we would be interested to know and, and to be informed. And a few years later, it happened. There was an animal that died in a, in a French zoo. Uh, an African elephant, mm -hmm. and they they told us right away this is super important because we need fresh samples. So we went, and we um, sampled the skin, and then we could do a lot of morphological analysis and and modeling, and we realized that actually these channels are real cracks in the skin. The skin is cracking like mud would be cracking, except that mud it's tensile cracking. Here it's not tensile cracking; it's bending cracks, and this bending is due to the growth of a huge stratum corneum on the skin, uh, which is very specific to, the, to, to so these animals. is this cracking happening before they're born, or are they born with no, completely smooth they skin? Are, they are born without the cracks, and then they grow this uh, stratum corneum, but it's growing not on a smooth skin. It's growing on a skin with tons of little peaks, oh. little mountains that are separate from each other by about one millimeter. So it's not uh, a flat skin. And because of these peaks, the growth of the stratum corneum generates tensions, but these are tensions that appear because of bending. So these are, it's like if you take an object, right, like, a, I don't know, a plastic ruler, yeah. and then you bend it. At some point, if you bend it too much, it will crack. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what is happening uh, in, the, in the stratum corneum of these animals because it's growing on the, you have these peaks. So this beautiful pattern, when you look very close uh, of the animal, this beautiful pattern is due to a purely physical process that is happening in the dead tissue uh, because there is growing tissue underneath. But otherwise, we are studying uh, uh, mostly uh, skin appendages and skin color and skin color patterns. Yeah. Yeah, so talking about the skin color, you also had one of your most cited articles. You studied chameleons, and so these yeah. are the quite famous lizards that yeah. can change color. Is it mostly the males when they're in social interactions, like in yes. mating behavior? Yes. And yes. you studied how do these, uh, how do they change color? Yeah, exactly. Chameleons, indeed, some chameleon species, many chameleon species, including the panther chameleon in Madagascar, can change color. The males can, especially become very bright, bright yellow or orange. What is funny in, uh, in, in reptiles is that they are much more interesting in a way than mammals in terms of coloration because they don't have only one pigment like mammals. So uh, mammals have mostly two types of melanin, right? Mm -hmm. That gives them different shades of uh, brownish, reddish uh, colors, right? Yeah. But in reptiles, you have bright blues, you have bright greens, you have bright yellows, oranges, red. It's crazy. Much more diverse. How is that possible? Especially what is interesting is that many snakes, lizards, frogs, so amphibians as well are like that. You, you see green skin, right? Of course you see green skin because it's super adaptive to be green in some environment. If you are living yeah, in an environment which is rich in plants, being green is good, isn't it? 
but there is no green pigments in vertebrates. Ah. Uh-huh. So how are these animals able to be green is a question that was not clearly defined, right? I mean, not clearly, sorry, answered. So we started to work on um, Malagasy lizards that are called Felsuma. These are day geckos. Okay. They are very, very green. It's a bright, bright green. And then we start to investigate these animals, and we knew that they have three types of chromatophores. This was described in the literature. They are melanocytes, so containing melanin, dark pigments. But they also have erythrophores, oxanthophores. It's basically the same type of cells. It contains yellow or red pigments. But then you have these amazing erythrophores. These cells do not contain any pigment and generate color. How is that possible? <laughs> okay. So we investigated that in the framework of making the skin gray. And uh, what we found is the following. is the fact that these erythrophores, they were known to contain nanocrystals. Okay. So structures you cannot see with uh, optical microscopy. You have to use electron microscopy because it's too small. And we realized that they have tiny, tiny crystals of 60, 80 nanometers in length. Okay, so tiny... Tiny, tiny nanocrystals that are made of guanine. The same compound that is used for one of the elements of of DNA. Ah, okay. They are made of crystalline guanine. And what is important is that when you look at these uh, electron microscopy images, it's beautiful because you realize that these crystals are organized spatially. They are not randomly distributed. They form layers, okay? They align to form layers. So again, this beauty of patterning and nature. Exactly. So here they are patterned at the micro, sub-microscopic scale. And they generate an effect at a much higher scale, which is that they generate color. So how is that possible? That's again physics. It's because you have what is called light interference. It's exactly like when you do a soap bubble, yeah. if, you, if you make a soap bubble, although your soap does not contain any pigment, mm. I guess you have realized that your soap bubble is full of colors. Or when you have an oil uh, spill, you know, it's full of colors, rainbow colors. And where are these colors coming from? These are not pigments. So if it's not pigments, how is that possible? This is because light is bouncing and being also refracted at interfaces between different materials. For example, in your soap bubbles, because the light is going from air to water, well, soapy water, okay? And therefore, it can be reflected on this interface, but other rays might be refracted, so they go inside the the, the watery film, but they are bending, right? Mm -hmm. And they can be reflected on the second interface, which is between the, this time the water and the air inside the bubble. Okay. okay. And then you have these, there are many possibilities, but for sure what is coming in your eye are the rays that have been reflected on the first interface, but also some of these that have been reflected on the second interface. And these rays have been traveling different distances, mm-hmm. right? And if the difference of distance is equal to the wavelength of blue, for example, mm-hmm. a blue light, yeah. or an integer times the blue wavelength, you yeah. know, two times, three times, four times, yeah. then the rays that come out will be in phase. That means that will, they will have the thrusts and the, and the peaks that will be aligned, and the energy of this color will be enhanced, so you will, you will see blue, very bright blue. But if it's true for blue, it will mean it will not be true for 
for for red, yeah. for example, and green. So the nanocrystals are acting a bit like your analogy of these bubbles, that if they bend the light in the correct way, the way to have the same wavelength as blue, for example, then it will reflect back into your eye and you will see it as blue. Exactly. So what is happening is that you have interfaces again between the cytoplasm and the guanine and then cytoplasm and guanine, mm -hmm. all right? So instead of having just two interfaces like in the soap bubble, you have multiple. So it's even much more efficient. Uh, because of this lattice of crystals. Because of this lattice okay. of crystals. So these cells are going to reflect only specific wavelengths. It's like a mirror because the efficiency is incredible. In, in, in the soap bubble, you have only two interfaces. But there, because you have enough interfaces, 100% of the blue light, for example, is coming back to your eye. Yeah. Okay? So you have very bright and pure colors that are okay. generated. Okay? So it's like a mirror, but that reflects only specific colors. Wow. Right? That's amazing. It's, it's, a, it's a mirror that is reflecting only part of the, yeah. the, of the spectrum. Now, pigments, on the other hand, mm -hmm. are absorbing wavelengths. You probably know this. If you see a piece of plastic that is yellow, it's, it looks yellow because it's absorbing the blue wavelengths. Yeah. And then all the other wavelengths are scattered into your eye. Yeah. The blue is not because it's absorbed mm -hmm. by the pigment. And you interpret this as yellow. Okay, so that's how pigments work. Now, in the skin of these uh, lizards from Madagascar, you have both. And what okay. is happening... And we describe that, we quantify this in details. You um, realize that actually the white light arrives on the skin. The blue and green wavelengths are reflected by these nanocrystals. Mm -hmm. The blues are absorbed by the yellow pigments. And all the other wavelengths are not absorbed, not reflected. So they go through the skin and they are absorbed by deeper tissues. So the only color that comes in your eye is green. So it's not an impression of green, it's a real green, it's a pure green, okay? Because that's the only wavelength that is both reflected and not absorbed, okay? Ah. So we go to the chameleons now. What we discovered, and, and this was a very fun study that, uh, by the way, we did with, uh, with uh, uh, some colleagues in the physics department, so, for example, Jeremy Tessier, we... Um, looked at what the situation in chameleons. They are green, but then the males, when they are in their trees, you know, hanging around, and then there is another mature male that comes, they get very angry. So they want to chase away the, 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 uh, competition. the competition. And then they become very yellow, for example. <laughs> so they go from a, from a cryptic color. I can tell you they are very difficult to find. They are really very cryptic in the tree and to something very, very visible, which is dangerous, of course, because you can be seen by a predator. Yeah. But that's something you do to impress your opponent, and when you succeed to uh, you know, make him yeah. leave, then you, you come back to green. It's okay? the risk they take to change That's the risk they take, right? And the two animals, they are, they are making this symbolic fight. Mm -hmm. you know, they try to be as impressive as possible. They also puff their body. They try to be as big as possible. Yeah. And usually one of them is, is giving up. But if they don't, if neither of them gives up, they are going to physically fight. They're going to bite. Um, so how do they change color? And, uh, and, and many people thought it was purely due to the migration of pigments. 
But these yellow pigments, to our knowledge, they don't migrate, these yellow pigments. Melanin can migrate, but not these uh, yellow pigments. So we investigated this uh, in details, and what we realized is that they are able to change the distance among their nanocrystals. Wow. Okay, so, so they keep the pigment the same, yes. and that will absorb different wavelengths so that you see a certain light normally. But then the crystals, which will reflect the light, can they can choose... They can power. change their characteristic distance That's crazy. such that they change the, the wavelengths that will be in positive constructive interference, right? So that's, that's really very, very surprising. I'm not saying pigments are not involved. There is also some movement of pigments. But this aspect, the fact that the nanocrystals could change their, their characteristic distance is amazing and, and I indeed will generate a huge interest in the biology, physics community, but also uh, engineering industry uh, because engineers are always after uh, ways of producing bright colors. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's crazy that evolution created this mad lattice of crystals that can alter yeah. and change the, the wavelength. Well, um, yeah, thanks so much. I, I think we could make a whole David Attenborough documentary about all the different animals you've told me about. I just want to end with some quick-fire questions. So firstly, what's your favourite part of your job? My favourite, the favourite part of my job is to stumble across a piece of new data that is generating goosebumps. So there you know that you are experiencing the beauty of the result. Because it's an emotional response, right? You're like, what? What am I seeing here? So there, there you, um, you realize that you are doing something that is worth it. You are experiencing the excitement of doing science. Maybe the other thing is this interaction I have with wonderful researchers in my group theoretical physicists, computer scientists, development biologists. This, the, you know, these people working together, and when it's working, it's beautiful to watch. Yeah, I love that answer. Number two, do you have a piece of advice for young scientists? Yes, please be curious. Think out of the box. Don't believe everything you are told, including in the classroom. You are told stuff which is probably approximate, that is very interesting. You should, you should not look down to your, your teachers. They are doing the best they can to give you amazing uh, you know, uh, pieces of knowledge. Uh, but question everything and think out of the box. Ooh, and lastly, uh, do you have a favorite quote or a person who inspires you? Well, there are tons of smart people uh, in the history of science, of course. But I would say that my uh, favorites are... Obviously, Charles Darwin, he was an absolute genius to propose what he proposed at the time he proposed it in a society where he was. It's just mind-blowing. It's amazing. And he was totally right in what he proposed. Yes, okay, it was maybe not as complete as what we know today, but he really uh, established the foundation of many things in evolutionary biology. So, uh, Charles Darwin, for sure, we are in the Charles Darwin study hall that yeah. we built. So, uh, so that's number one, I would say. Then, of course, Alan Turing, uh, John von Neumann, so mathematicians who had a major role, I think, in understanding the fact that 
living systems are dynamical systems that can be described by mathematical tools. Earlier scholars, Poincaré, for example, really was also an absolute genius and, and laid the foundation that allowed later people to understand uh, dynamical systems. Yeah, these, these, these come up to, to my Darcy Thompson. Darcy Thompson, of course, who was among the very, very first to realize that biology should also be looked at with not just genetics in mind, but also mechanics. Well, thank you very much, Professor Michelle Malinkovich, for the inspiring and really fascinating interview. Thank you very much. It's really nice you're doing this, you know, and I hope uh, you know, people will be interested to this kind of sure stories. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much to Zoe and Professor Milinkovic for this insightful interview. Join us next week when I'll be interviewing Professor Shan Wu about non-coding RNAs and their functions. Bye-bye.